Bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France from Clovis to Napoleon III. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. And Eliza. Yes. If we include all of our episodes that we've recorded, like including for the Patreon, this yeah. is our 100th episode. Really? I thought it was more by now. But yay. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. I was some reason I expecting we would I just some reason I thought we'd already done a hundred. Eliza underwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, that's because I thought we'd like done a hundred already. <laughs> no, no, this is this is number one hundred. Yeah. Oh, but yay. I, I had to count ca- I may I may have miscounted, but I'm pretty sure it's number one hundred. Yeah, um, you're probably right. I yeah. just, you know. Everything. Um, but even though it's episode 49, it's just, that just means it's our 49th king. But we've done loads of other episodes on other things. Yeah, damn, it would have been nice to be in a 50th king was our 100th episode. That would have been beautiful. Mm. Oh, well. Now that we've done Joan of Arc, we're going to do her king, Charles the mm-hmm. Seventh, mm-hmm. And we are once again, we're going to be going over a lot of details that we got into a bit further in the Regency of Madness miniseries. Um, But once again, as I said in Charles, the sixth episode, if you skipped the Regency of Madness or if you don't remember what the hell happened, we'll be covering the basics again. Yeah, so we'll we'll probably junk your memory. Yeah, and we'll be covering just, you know, the basic things that directly involve Charles VII. Yeah. And we'll skim over everything else. Yeah. So... Let's get into it then. Let's get yes. straight in. Let's. Charles VII mm-hmm. was born on the 22nd of February, 1403, okay. which makes him a Pisces. Yay. Just like Eliza. Good, um, good sign. Not yeah. that I'm into that, but I do like some fish. I was going to say, if you didn't like fish, you're living in the wrong country. Uh, <laughs> I love my fish, so it's great. So he was the very final child out of the six sons and six daughters born to King Charles VI of France Damn. and his queen, Isabeau of Bavaria. By the time he was born, Charles VII's father was just over a decade into the bouts of madness that he oh. that uh, frequently made him incapable of rule. Uh, so he never knew his father without Not really, bouts. no. Yeah. Well, especially since Isabeau, at, at this point, she seems to have decided to separate um, yeah. from... Her husband, which is why Charles is the final child. Yeah. So soon after Charles's birth, Isabeau moved her quarters and the royal nursery out of the king's palace, uh, mm. the Hotel de Saint-Paul. But the royal family never fully settled anywhere else. Yeah. There was a lot of moving around. And much yeah, of yeah. Charles's early childhood was spent either captive to or on the run from various lords of France who sought to control the kingdom's uh, fortunes, while its king was incapacitated. Not a great childhood. Not an amazing childhood. Until Charles got to the age of 10, um, mm-hmm. and he was sent as a ward uh, yeah. into the more pleasant countryside of the Loire Valley, and he was warded to Louis II, Duke of Anjou, and King of Naples. So Charles was betrothed to Louis's daughter, Marie, yes. And he was mainly under the guardianship of Louis's wife, Yolande of Aragon, mm. the queen of the four kingdoms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the most powerful woman in France, aside from the queen of France. 
under her tutelage, Charles started mm-hmm. to finally like enjoy life a bit. Nice. He, in, in particular, developed a love for like music and literature. He also, unfortunately, mm-hmm. grew to resent his mother, um, yep. who he saw as sort of neglecting him in favor of his elder brothers. Mm. He also resented the extremely powerful, rich, and popular Burgundian Duke, John the Fearless. Mm. who had also, you know, murdered his uncle, Louis of Orléans. <laughs> Not only had John destabilised the realm with this murder... They helped contribute to a bitter little boy. Yes. <laughs> but he also now controlled Paris through basically mob rule. Um, yeah. Any way you slice it, he was going to be a major obstacle for Charles uh, mm. asserting his own power. Unless he was out of the picture. So there, there were, of course, many other people who opposed the Duke of Burgundy. Uh, the League of Jean, a.k.a. the Orleanists, a.k.a. the Armagnacs, whatever you want to call them. Oh my god, Um, I love that, the League. Yeah, and the Anjou family were definitely anti-John the Fearless as well. Charles is growing Mm. up under their influence. He's becoming politically aware, at least, under their influence. And though the murder of the Duke of Orleans, which started the Civil War, had occurred when Charles was only three years old... Uh, he developed a passionate hatred for John the Fearless uh, mm. that was completely unlike his older brothers, who were always yeah. more neutral and sought yeah. peace between the factions, like their mother had. Yeah. Because, of course, they're under that influence. So the Anjous, and mm-hmm. by extension, young Charles, they mostly did take a backseat in the Civil War, though. Because, again, yeah. Charles is very young, and the Anjous are trying to, like, stay alive. Um, yeah. So in the in the 1410s, the Armagnacs were led by the teenage Duke Charles of Orléans, the son of the mm-hmm. murdered Duke, who yeah. was imprisoned in the Battle of Agincourt in 1450 uh, yeah. and uh, spends 25 years in prison. Mm. As well as the elderly Duke of Berry, who dies the following year in 1416, and the Count of Armagnac, who yeah. was killed by a Parisian mob when John the Fearless retook Paris in 1418. Prince Charles was actually in the city of Paris when that happened, actually. Oh. And he was only narrowly spirited away by a loyal Armagnac knight called Tongi du Chastel, hmm. who henceforth became one of Charles's most trusted companions. And Tongi's going to come back. Um, Tongi, his name. So by now, Charles was the Dauphin. Uh, yeah. His elder brothers, Louis of Guienne and John of Touraine, mm. had just died. Yeah. Suspiciously. Um, around mm-hmm. the same time. But Charles remained alienated from his mother, who, yeah. upon requesting Yolande hand him over to her custody, was She's met like, with a, a rather fiery <laughs> reply. Yeah. Which basically boils down to, you know, if you want him, come and claim him. Oh, that was a good reference! Yes, thank you. So, Isabeau, by this point, had been imprisoned by the Armagnacs in Tours, and the Queen... She managed to return to Paris after the yeah. Count of Armagnac's murder. But from this point, she will be forced to side with the Burgundians, who control the royal domain, basically. Yeah. Consequently, she will never see her son again. So with most of the other major leaders now either dead or imprisoned, Charles the Dauphin, at only 16 years old, now became the leading figurehead of the Armagnacs. Yeah. So from this point, historians often differentiate the Dauphinists, so like an umbrella term for yeah. all of the supporters of the Dauphin, 
from the Armagnacs, who are kind of like the more kind of radical wing of that party, who are the most antagonistic towards the Burgundians. But people like Yolande, for example, was a Dauphinist, but she's not an Armagnac, uh, because Uh. she hoped that she could reconcile um, John the Fearless with the Dauphin. And uh, that was the only way that it was figured that they could defeat the English. Because, by the way... (laughs) Uh, in case you guys forgot, <laughs> the Hundred Years' War is still happening, still and England happening. controls about a third of France at this point. Mm. And they're gaining more every day. <laughs> <laughs> Having fled Burgundian-controlled Paris, the Dauphin now set up his capital at Bourges, the capital of Berry, yeah. a, a beautiful castle in the Upper Loire nice. Valley that he'd inherited from the Duke of Berry. So Bourges is smack bang in the middle of France, basically. A safe distance from Paris, from Burgundy, and from the English. It's kind of out of the way. Mm. At this point, however, it seemed the Dauphin and the Duke of Burgundy might overcome their differences to face the English together. In fact, Charles and John the Fearless, they'd already signed a treaty at Puyi when they arranged a follow-up meeting at another bridge uh, city, Mm -hmm. uh, the Bridge of Montreux-Fourion, soon to become... The, the most the bridge infamous mis- bridge. She turned into the bridge of misfortune. Yes. So while the Dauphin had been convinced into the reconciliation with Burgundy, which would enable their combined forces to go yeah. and besiege Rouen and drive the English out of Normandy, yes. the Armagnacs around him could not tolerate this. They're whispering into his ear. Yeah. Not only had they not forgiven John for assassinating their martyr, Louis of Orléans, Mm-hmm. Not only did they think Burgundy joining their court would mean less influence for them, yeah. but they also suspected John of having been behind the deaths of the other two Dauphins, uh. um, his elder brothers, because it was rumoured that both of them had been poisoned by the Burgundians. There's no evidence for this. So that would make sense, because wouldn't the Burgundians want them because they could keep, weren't they in control of them? Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like why Burgundians could kill their puppets? I mean, they weren't exactly puppets. It's a bit more complicated than that, but, you know, there's a lot of disease. So at the bridge, when John the Fearless stepped forward to kneel before the Dauphin, one of the Armagnac knights, Tongi du Chastel, stepped forward and swung an axe uh, into the Duke of Burgundy. Was it an instant death? No. It was, I think they hacked off an arm first and then they swung it into his head. And before his men could even react, he had been hacked to death. Lisa wasn't like drawn out for like days and days. No, it was fairly quick, I guess. It was was quick enough that by the time his men reacted, he was already dead. And his brains were strewn across the bridge. Lovely. Yeah. So it's unclear whether the Dauphin knew this would happen or if this was a surprise (laughs) to him. (laughs) He's like, oh, Um, sucker bleu. In the immediate aftermath, yeah, he said sacre bleu, he, he ran away, and um, he insisted that it had a smile. You know, <laughs> he hadn't planned it. Uh, but it was done by his men in his presence. So yeah. he was judged to be responsible. Yeah. Circumstantial evidence. Well, it's more than circumstantial. <laughs> I know. Um, he didn't know, so he could argue that it was yeah. circumstantial in terms of he didn't, he wasn't part of the plan. I don't think that's what circumstantial means, but all right. (laughs) So this incident was the biggest turning point in Dauphin Charles' life. Not only was he severely psychologically traumatized 
by this event to the extent that he developed a pathological fear of bridges. As far as it's not a pathological fear of axes. No, no, just bridges. So he, like, never crossed over them? No, but he he always had people check that the bridge was okay. (laughs) It's not like the bridge killed the guy, for God's sake. He had to basically have someone holding his hand to walk across the bridge. (laughs) It wasn't like the bridge collapsed and the guy died. It was a bloody axe. No, but this isn't a rational fear, Eliza. This is a pathological fear. Um, Maybe it's a, a subconscious sign of guilt. Yes, probably. Manifesting in the fear of the bridge. But yeah, Charles, for all intents and purposes, is considered to have murdered John the Fearless. Yeah. Just as overtly as John the Fearless murdered Louis of Orleans. And yeah. the violent Armagnac wing of the Dauphin's supporters, they had won, but at a great cost. They had created a cycle of revenge <laughs> between uh, his you family and the that. Burgundians. Yes. And it was John the Fearless's son and successor, Duke Philip the Good of Burgundy, who took his revenge next <laughs> by siding with the English. Cycle of revenge. And uh, Philip the Good worked with King Henry V to make him the new heir to France, which was made mm. official with the Treaty of Troyes and Henry's marriage to Catherine of Valois which was followed by King Henry V's entry into Paris, alongside the Mad King, Charles VI, who was just Uh. sort of being carted along. Mm. Queen Isabeau is basically forced to sign away Charles's inheritance Mm. in this treaty, the Treaty of Troyes. All of this happened, however, just before Henry V's sudden death (laughs) um, Mm. at a siege, uh, followed almost immediately by the death of King Charles VI. So Charles VII is now Charles VII. He's now the king. <laughs> Although not really, kind crowned. of. Crowned. We will consider his reign to have started now. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But he's not crowned. Many still refer to him as the Dauphin when they're not referring to him as the King of Bourges, which his enemies called him derisively. <laughs> treaty or no treaty, he still has a far better claim than yeah. his nephew, Henry VI, yeah. who was a a baby in England. <laughs> yeah. But the, the Burgundians and the English Regency in, in France are doing pretty well at this point. However, things were not hopeless by any means. There was still a chance the Burgundians could be won over again mm. by, you know, a show of contrition from Charles for the bad thing that happened. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Charles made absolutely no effort to reconcile, yeah. uh, nor did he make any effort to actually fight. Um he kind of just did nothing. <laughs> so he's basically kind of like paralyzed by like depression, anxiety, mm. mummy issues, that kind of thing. Can't blame him for that. Probably the fear that as well that he would develop his father's mental health issues. Potentially. But uh, he also at this point started to suspect that his father wasn't even his father. <laughs> oh yeah, true, true. Because there was a rumor Daddy that his mom too. had been, you know, an adulteress. It- his uncle was his father, and his father was his uncle, fears. So none of this was helped by the drinking, womanizing, and generally unruly behavior that was encouraged by Charles's new favorite chamberlain, Georges de la Tremouille. And by the way, I've been pronouncing his name wrong. Tremouille. I've been saying Tremouille. It's actually Tremouille. Tremouille. I was pronouncing it like Gremouille, which means frog in French. You know, I do like Tremouille. Tremwe is nice, but it's actually Tremwy. Uh, <laughs> we met La Tremwy in Joan of Arc's episode, of course, as a kind of obstructor 
of Joan, as well as Yolande. He also was a bit of an enemy of Yolande at court. Mm-hmm. While Charles certainly had the military capacity to take on the English, he seemed to have gotten almost sort of bored of the war. Complacent. And <laughs> yeah, and this was to the great frustration of allies like his constable, Arthur de Richemont, as well as cousins like the Duke of Alençon and the Bastard of Orléans, uh, who... Yeah had personally lost a lot of land and resources to this war. And of, co- of course, certainly Yolande herself, whose lands were being yeah. threatened by now. Like the English around this time take the county of Maine, uh, which mm. she's been governing. She would not be happy. So as we talked about in Yolande's episode, she was determined to get La Tremoye out of influence, mm. get Charles to take responsibility. Light and ab- some fire under him. And above all, to go to the Duke of Burgundy to sort out a truce. Because the only reason the English are winning the war, aside from France's stupid battle tactics, <laughs> is because the Burgundians, a huge chunk of France, are on their side. Because let's not forget, Burgundy is not just Burgundy at this point. It's also Flanders, Picardy, Champagne, Paris. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, huge chunk. Uh, so a decade after the murder of John the Fearless, things finally start to look up in 1429, when a wild Joan of Arc appears, yes. um, like a Pokemon, uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> Pokemon Go, and we've been over the next year of French history in a lot of detail because we've done an yeah. episode on Joan of Arc, and we even watched a god awful movie about it. Oh yeah, we watched uh, the we Messenger, which <laughs> it was crime against cinematic history. Let's just say that film was was very nineties. <laughs> yeah. The only good point was that I had John Malkovich. So, <laughs> from Charles's perspective, uh, sadly, once Joan turns the tide of the war by breaking the siege of Orléans and leading him to his uh, coronation at Reims, he views her as kind of an expendable liability. A um, and partly due to his lack of support for Joan of Arc, she ends up being captured in May 1430, and the following year, executed at Rouen in Normandy by the English. Mm. By the end of Joan's life, however, the English were going mm. bankrupt because of their mm. defeats. And war's expensive. And obviously, we've skimmed over this. We get into it. But English uh, suffer numerous defeats when Joan of Arc appears. They're sort of beginning their slow retreat from France. While Charles's generals had made enough gains to start threatening Paris. Mm. But suddenly, now that he had a bit of morale on his side, it looked like he might not need to take Paris by force. Yeah. So England pretty much only held Paris because the Burgundians let them. Um, yeah. Because remember, the people of Paris are generally very pro-Burgundian. Yeah. At this point, it started to look like Philip the Good might actually play ball. Mm. It had been a while since his dad was killed. Um, <laughs> it was kind of known that Charles, it was kind of out of character for Charles to have murdered him. Yeah. Um, And Charles starts to show contrition and he starts being like, look, I'll do some penance. I'll erect a monument at the bridge where he was killed. But I'm not going near that bridge. (laughs) We can sort something out, basically. Yeah, but I'm not going near that bridge. So to cut a very long story short, because this is years of like tentative negotiations that I'm skimming over. This eventually led to the Congress of Arras in 1435, Mm -hmm. about four years after Joan of Arc's death. Okay. And this is a meeting in which the English delegation basically stormed out of the Congress Mm. as the Burgundians were starting to make it clear that they were reconciling with the French. (laughs) And the English stubbornly refused to give any concessions to either side. So they were just basically like, 
they just basically left in a huff. Um, that just makes me think of like South Park and Cartman's like, screw you guys, I'm going home. I'm going home. So the Congress of Arras led to the final peace between the Dauphinists and the Burgundians, and at least united France uh, against the English in a way that it hadn't been since basically Charles V. Yeah. And much of this is due to the negotiating and cooperating of Yolande, of Philip the Good, and of Charles of Orleans, who yeah. won't be released from England until <laughs> 1440. Um, but it's still a big part of the negotiations. Along with his poems. (laughs) Yeah. And it helps that Charles of Orléans has made some friends in England, like William Delapole, the Earl of uh, Salisbury, who, um, is it Salisbury? You think it was Shrewsbury? It's either, he's either the Earl of Salisbury or Shrewsbury. I think it's Salisbury. (laughs) But it's William Delapole, who's actually Charles of Orléans' jailer, as uh, Veronica (laughs) talked about in Charles' episode, but they kind of get on and they sort of, that helps Come the nego- that helps grease the wheels, I guess, of negotiations. The yeah. fact that there are now social ties between them. Yeah. But from the 1430s onward, uh, Charles VII, he starts becoming a lot less idle and useless than he was before. Oh, that's nice. Nice change. He starts acting more like a king than a, a sullen teenager with, with mummy issues. What was that? <laughs> Is there a particular reason? I think it's just the fact that things are improving. Looking better. <laughs> Yeah. So he's in a better mood. <laughs> yeah. And it's about time because he's 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 in his thirties at this point, which is basically middle aged for um yeah, the time. That period. So in February fourteen thirty six, uh mm-hmm. Charles's general Arthur de Richemont blockades Paris and two months later the Burgundian supporters within Paris opened the gates and Hmm. uh, allowed the newly united French force to enter the city. Yay. And then after nearly two years of campaigning to rid the Ile de France of English garrisons, the various castles surrounding Paris, and expel them into Normandy, Charles made his grand official entry into Paris on the 12th of November, 1437, in a grand procession. Like the coronation he never had. Well, he did have a coronation. (laughs) No, no, I mean like the grand coronation he never had yeah it's much grander than his coronation which was very hasty a redo kind of so there's this ceremony where like the mayor of the city of paris gives the keys to the city to charles um (laughs) and then he proceeds to notre dame uh, for a mass of thanksgiving although charles always disliked paris um (laughs) and he he spent the rest of his reign mainly in and around bourges which is his home so he would have got along well for eleanor of aquitaine well, she disliked so, Paris. Oh yeah, she disliked Paris. Yeah, I was like, I was like, I was like, Eleanor actually didn't live at Bush. <laughs> no, uh, no, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So then, after more fighting in Normandy on the twenty eighth of May, fourteen forty four, a temporary truce was negotiated with the English, and mm-hmm. this is the first time that Charles is able to negotiate with the English from a position of strength. Nice. And as part of this truce, Queen Marie's niece, so his wife's niece, uh, mm-hmm. Margaret of Anjou, is married to oh. King Henry VI of England. Oh. Yeah. So while France and Burgundy sort of mend their diplomatic relations and together yeah. start gradually pushing back the English border, both in Normandy and in Aquitaine uh, as well, yeah. because remember the English still have a lot of the southwest, Charles VII, meanwhile, starts to sort of set his house in order. Uh, nice. Now that he has Paris back, and to sort of reorganize and reform 
the court, basically. Nice. So that the the failures of the last few decades won't be repeated. He actually reads Christine de Pizon's biography of Charles V and takes a lot of inspiration from that as well. And he starts these reforms by getting rid of certain troublesome courtiers uh, like La Tremoille. Ah, not a favourite any longer. So Charles is constable Arthur de Richemont, who was also the Duke of Brittany's brother, by the way. Um, yeah. He was the arch-rival of La Tremoille. So he was probably so happy. Yeah, so Richemont even conspired to assassinate La Tremoille in March oh. uh, 1433, though La Tremoille managed to escape after a, a light stabbing. <laughs> light stabbing? A light stabbing. <laughs> a light stabbing. Not a heavy stabbing, just a light stabbing. Yeah, and the king by this point, he'd soured on La Tremoille, and he doesn't seem to have condemned the assassination attempt. He's like, eh, he survived. But La Tremoille still had powerful allies among the military, including the Duke of Alençon. They're allied Mm -hmm. by this point. Annie was also married to the Dowager Duchess of Berry, who's quite powerful. Uh, who's, she's also the Countess of Auvergne in her own right. Mm. So to counter La Tremoille's strength, uh, Richemont turned to Yolande, um, uh, who had idea. recently made a marriage alliance with Brittany. Together they joined forces to bring charges of financial corruption against La Tremoille, mm. who had to flee court as a result of both that and the light stabbing. <laughs> so <laughs> La Tremoille will continue to cause a bit of trouble in the background after this, but he's officially fallen out of the king's favor and he's no longer yeah. super important. But La Tremoille was not the only troublesome noble who had to get rooted okay. out in this in this period uh, towards the end of the Hundred Years' War. In 1440, there was an uprising called the Praguerie, uh, okay. a sort of uprising of French nobles, which was led by the Dukes of Bourbon and Alençon. Oh as well as the Count uh, Count of Armagnac. Um, Mm. And these are all people who had been staunchly loyal to Charles up to this point, and who, on top of that, had convinced the teenage Dauphin, Louis, to join them as well. Oh! We'll get into Charles' relationship with his son uh, a bit (laughs) more in ooh-la-la, because it's very juicy. But basically, he's like a a young teenager at this point. He just sort of just gets caught up in... Uh, this rebellion. So these lords were basically angry that their privileges has ha- have been eroded <laughs> as a result of Charles's military and tax reforms, as well as the favouring of lords like Arthur de Richemont since his victories in the war, as well as uh, Yolande's family. Like um, yeah. her youngest son, Charles Count of Maine, was now sort of the favourite at court. Uh. It was called the Praguery, this rebellion, mm-hmm. um, in reference to the capital city of Bohemia, Prague, oh, um, yeah. which which became known for its violent uprisings around this time. Um, oh. Although I think that's rather rich coming from people who live in Paris. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like their pastime, I say. Yeah. So in a show of remarkable character growth, however, uh, Charles managed to put down the Praguery very swiftly oh. and decisively. And it helped that both the Duke of Burgundy and the newly freed Duke of Orléans were behind him now. Yes, that does help. And ironically, Burgundy and Orléans are now, like, close personal friends. (laughs) (laughs) So Charles managed to chase the rebels into the lands of Bourbon, and uh, the Duke of Bourbon, uh, the leader of the uprising, ended up being betrayed by his own citizens at Auvergne, who declared their loyalty to the king. Oh, that's good on them. The neighbouring Duke of Burgundy ended up uh, sort of intervening and brokering a peace 
but these lords, they will continue to be troublesome, particularly yeah. Alanson. So Alanson, who we'll remember as a loyal companion of Joan of Arc. Yeah, the fair one. Yeah, the fair duke. In particular, he was enraged by Charles VII's reconciliation with Burgundy. And Alanson's lands in Normandy, they'd been devastated by war. And he was yeah. extremely poor. So he turned to increasingly desperate alliances. Yeah. Um, in 1458, it was discovered that Alençon had been secretly corresponding with the English, of all people, <gasps> for three years. Yeah, Joan would not be happy. Joan would not be happy at all, Alençon. Um, and he was arrested in the south of France by the Bast of Orléans. Um, oh. And he was uh, sentenced for treason and had all of his lands and titles confiscated. Hmm. He was sentenced to death, but he wasn't actually put to death. Um, huh. He was just basically kept um, in prison. Prisoner. And uh, he died in prison 18 years later. Oh, wow. He's in there a long time. Quite the fall from grace for Joan of Arc's yeah. fair duke. Meanwhile, uh, the final push against England had begun uh, in the summer mm. of 1449, when yes. Charles VII personally led an invasion of Normandy. Oh. Or at least the half of Normandy that England still controlled. Because by now, <laughs> France has expanded into Normandy a bit. Yay. So during this campaign, by contrast to previous campaigns, chroniclers note how disciplined and well-organized the French army was. Getting their stuff together. Yes. So gone are the days of reckless cavalry charges. Yes. This is mainly a siege-based campaign. Mm. Um, so Charles and his generals, which includes a substantial portion of allies from Brittany, brought over by Richemont and Yolande's alliance, um, mm-hmm. They invest heavily in archers and increasingly advanced cannons as well. Nice. And they basically bombard the English into submission. Eventually, they take the city of Rouen in November 1450. In response, Henry VI of England sends over reinforcements, uh, but they were crushed at the Battle of Formigny. And by 1451, France had regained pretty much all of Normandy. We're already on Henry VI. Yeah, we've been on Henry VI this whole time. Oh, sorry, I was thinking fifth in my head. So in another show of character growth, uh, Charles VII didn't just sit back on his haunches after these victories in Normandy. Mm. Even though it was straining France's finances to its absolute limits, he knew that he had to capitalise on this victory and push England all the way out of France. Because remember, they've still got Aquitaine. Yeah. Um, or, or Guienne, as it's also called. Yeah. They're like pesky cockroaches. They just won't die. So Charles calls up his army again in 1453, mm. and he sends them straight into Bordeaux, or mm. towards Bordeaux, England's southern capital. And on the way, the French meet the English general John Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury, mm-hmm. at the Battle okay. of Castillon on the 17th of July, 1453. Yep. Talbot is like, he's called Old Talbot, um, he's referred to as the English Achilles. He's like a big war hero. He's been involved in a lot of English victories against the French. So this is an intimidating yeah. enemy. Did he die from an arrow in his he- heel? No, it's different. Um, <laughs> so Charles VII wasn't present at the, the Battle of Castillon. The French army was commanded by Jean Bureau, who was a French mm-hmm. artillery officer, who actually yeah. came from a more middle-class background. Castillon itself was not of major strategic significance. The main win in this battle was the death of Talbot, who was not struck, not not shot in the ankle. Um, He was uh, no, he was crushed by his own horse. Oh, yeah. 
sad death for a great war hero. But he was, you know, celebrated. Even the French, like, celebrated him in the sort of the sort of chivalrous way that you celebrate a fallen enemy. Yeah. So King Charles joined Jean Bureau at the ensuing siege of Bordeaux the following autumn. And the day the French took Bordeaux on the 19th of October, 1453, Mm -hmm. is considered by most historians to be the end of the Hundred Years' War. Yay! Now, there's no actual treaty declaring the end of the Hundred Years' War. There's not even a truce negotiation. But the fighting just sort of stops. Um, It's it's over. Yeah. And this is the end of Anglo-French hostilities for a very long time. So England now only controls Calais in mainland France. This is pretty much all they're going to hold on to. And they've been so humiliated by the loss of Normandy and Aquitaine, they essentially just go home and, of course, start fighting among themselves. themselves. Because if you can't fight enemies, just fight yourselves yeah and uh two years after this the wars of the roses start oh in england yeah so with that we finally reached the end of the hundred years war it only took 116 years (laughs) (laughs) by some accounts it goes to the treaty of etaples in 1492 uh which would be 155 years No. But let's go with the more conventional date of 1453. Yes. Let's say it's over now. Yeah, I can't deal with more. So Charles VII reigns for a further eight years. Nice. And during this time, we see France starting to recover and sort of heal That's from the good. war. There's like huge expanses of France that have just been laid waste by the war. Uh, yeah. Like, like entire villages abandoned just with forests yeah. growing out of them. Whole, like strips Mm. of farmland like lying fallow like it's gonna take ages for france to recover from this yeah a lot of people see this as what kind of stalls the renaissance from happening in france yeah like a lot of people uh believe that you know the reason it happens in italy but not in france until like a bit later is because france just has no money uh to like pour into um (laughs) like cultural innovation yeah they're they're more Um, folks on building the basics Exactly. Um, just like, let's just try to live. Let's have food on the table first before we worry about some painting. <laughs> yeah. And there's also, there's still waves of plague happening as well. So. Yeah. Sante Yeah. By the way, this entire time there's been plague. <laughs> <laughs> when isn't there plague? I mean, nowhere, nowhere near as, near as bad as the, the initial one, the, the 13. Yeah, the big one. 40s one, yeah, but which killed two thirds of Europe. But um, yeah. you know, little little aftershocks of plague. Despite his victories, the end of Charles's life is sadly a bit distressful. Um, he he'd alienated his wife uh, Marie oh. and his son Louis, and the love of his life, Agnes Sorel, who we're going to get into, Yay. was already already dead by this point. So from 1455 onward, Charles started experiencing a pain in his side. From 1457, a septic ulcer in his leg. And from 1458, mouth ulcers and dental issues that made eating and swallowing extremely painful. It's speculated that Charles VII may have been an early victim of syphilis, actually. Oh. Um, But it's unclear. Charles had, at this point, completely fallen out with his son, Louis. Not to the extent that he disinherited him, but, but <laughs> definitely they're not getting along. Um, yeah. So it's his younger son, Charles Jr., uh, mm-hmm. who's at his deathbed. 
Um, huh. Little 15-year-old Charles. Yeah. Unlike Charles's father, who had nobody. No. And then, and yeah, Charles VII dies on the 22nd of July, 1461. Mm-hmm. Um so he had to deal with that mouth ulcer thing for like three years. <laughs> oh God! He was uh fifty eight, no, fifty seven years old. Okay. And he died at the castle of Mansur Yevre. That's so hard to pronounce. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was buried, of course, at Saint Denis. And his elder son succeeded him as King Louis the Eleventh. Um, wow. who is going to be a fun next episode. We'll get to him. <laughs> So now it's time to rate King Charles VII and finally pass judgment on this guy, this very complicated man. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So we'll get into Enchanté. Enchanté. So first of all, I'm going to send you a portrait of Charles VII by Jean Fouquet, who is the favourite court painter. It is considered to be one of the first major court portrait images. Okay. <laughs> Damn. That hat. The shoulders. They're like um shoulder pads. <laughs> so I think I mentioned in a previous episode that this that he looks like Humpty Dumpty. His head just looks like an egg that's got a big hat popped on it. He did have a bowl cut, which is hidden by this extravagant hat. And uh, I can show you that in next painting. This is also a painting by Jean Fouquet. It shows Charles as one of the Magi in the Adoration of the Magi. Um, So he's one of the three kings. Is he the one in the green? Yes, he's the one in the green holding the chalice. And he's got his shoulder pads. He's got the big shoulder pads. That's very fashionable this time. We know where the 80s were influenced by. And uh, he's he's saying hi to the Virgin Mary. They made sure he's not even kneeling on the dirt, though. They're like, no, 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 we've got to lay down this rug and pillow beforehand. Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, he's got a fun hat that's next to him. Yeah. That hat is so cr- – that crown hat is good. I like that. What hat? The, hat, the white hat next to him. It's a crown Oh, hat. the hat on the ground. He's got a nice yeah. crown hat. It's like a hat with a crown. And you can see the guys behind him wearing similar hats. Yeah. Um, I believe the guy behind him wearing the white is Louis XI, his son. And then, oh, the little feathers on the guards. I like those little... Yeah, it's a glorious picture. Now, these are these are both by Jean Fouquet. Wow, it's amazing they've survived. We've actually uh, looked at a lot of paintings by Jean Fouquet over the course of the yeah, podcast. Yeah, I felt like it, it looked familiar. And he painted Charles's likeness a number of times, uh, as well as a huge number of like manuscript images. Is there a war going on in the background? There is a war depiction at the back. I'm not sure. This is meant to be some kind of siege. But, you know, you've got to show off your military victories while you're presenting presents to Baby it's Jesus. Too... Yeah. Baby Jesus won't be impressed otherwise. <laughs> Yeah. Believe it or not, Eliza, in this medieval image, I don't think they're going for realism. What? <laughs> but you can see French art in this time start transitioning into a more mm. renaissance vibe, um, yeah. especially with portraiture. Portraiture is a, like a whole yeah, new genre. Yeah, it's looking genre. better. They don't all look like creepy aliens. And Jean Fouquet is a, is a big innovator in this regard. Mm. Um, he comes from the Loire Valley, where um, Charles was raised. He sort of ascends to prominence at, prominence at Charles's court. So I think nice. this is big props to Charles for yeah, um, definitely. Enchanté. Yeah, considering we've u- now used this artist for so many things, that is, yeah. We also have a big a big manuscript called the Vigile du, du Roi 
Charles mm-hmm. set, the vigils of King Charles VII, which has a, a bunch of images um, depicting events from his life. Um, nice. And I'll show you a couple of them. So I've got one image of Charles' entry into Paris from the, from the mm-hmm. vigils. He's just coming through the gate on his big horse. Oh, yeah. Very French noses. Another one of Charles at uh, the Siege of Bordeaux, where he basically essentially wins the Hundred Years' War. Nice. Got some nice armor on. I always like how they do like an imprint of the crown within the on the armor. Yeah, it's nice. They're like, oh, we've got to make sure they all know he's the king. Let's put a crown on the armor. It's attached it to yeah. that helmet. So now we've got to get into epithets as well. Yes. Uh, finally yes. for Enchanté. Save the best finally. for last. So Charles VII's epithet, the one usually yeah. given, is Le Victorieux. Meaning the victor. The victorious. Yeah. Oh. Uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah. However, there's another epithet given to him, which I think is a bit more accurate, which is Charles Le Bien Servi, the well-served, because he's got a lot of people around him that are Serving doing a lot of great need. things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whether it's Joan of Arc, Yolande of Aragon, Arthur de Richemont. Not Le Tremois. <laughs> we're not we're not counting him. I love how your um, mind went to lots of good people and I was thinking well served in terms of well served by his mistress. <laughs> oh and I mean and Anne Sorel is yeah, definitely in that category as well. <laughs> that was um, my first thought. Yeah. I'm dirty, dirty. I have skimmed over Agnes Sorel because we're going to talk about her a bit in Ulala, and she's also getting her own episode in our <laughs> mistress series. So we're going to talk a lot more about her. Yeah. Um, but that is what I have for Enchanté. What do we think good. we want to give Charles? He's got some good epithets, like the Victorious good epithets. one particularly. And I like how he supported the arts in terms of then, like, we've used it for lots of ones because of his support, which is a good legacy to have. First king with multiple instances of proper likeness portraiture. I know that John yep. II technically had the first royal portrait, but that portrait was like... Meh. It was meh, and it also, it I wasn't really a royal it. portrait. It was, like, a random painting that had been found in a royal house that, um that was they're like yeah, it's him. we don't we we don't really know who commissioned it or who, who painted it it just says it, it's king john on it um and that's all we know <laughs> like we don't know much about it yeah. whereas charles VII, we know that he commissioned john Fouquet to paint his portrait like it's very definite yeah even though it's like it's unfortunate that it had to happen to s- such an ugly king <laughs> yeah. god they've been showing the eye bags i know he's got major eye bags poor chap Jean Fouquet is like, are you sure? Are you sure we want to start this accurate portraiture thing now? Are you sure? All right. It's like, yeah. I mean, yeah. you you told you said I could. No airbrush. <laughs> so, what do we want to score him for Enchanté? Well, he's got a good legacy, I'd say. Like, you know, he's associated with the ending of the Hundred Year War, which is pretty major. So, it feels mm-hmm. like he should get above a five. Like, I came into this thinking, based just on our previous mentions of him in previous episodes, thinking he was going to be, like, really, really awful, just, like, scum against the earth kind of thing, like a hopeless, yeah. useless, pathetic thing. But as he grew into it, he seemed to have done better. So yeah. I've got a more of a positive image of him as his life increased. So mm. that's favourable for him from me. I, I've got a I've got a quote from um, uh, MGA Vale, who is the 
a, a modern biographer of Charles VII. Yeah. Yeah, he says, uh, the face that peers out from the Louvre portrait of Charles VII is not prepossessing. The small, hooded, rodent-like eyes, the long, bulbous nose, the thick, sensual lips, the unhealthy colouring exclude the sitter from consideration among the finer types of royal physiognomy. But some of his contemporaries did not consider nature to have been unduly unkind to this member of a line, which was not renowned for its physical beauty. Um... So, so apparently, he's considered okay looking for the time. Fifteenth <laughs> century standards of physical beauty were not those of today. You don't say. <laughs> yeah, it's um, <laughs> at the time he was pretty he was all average. right. I guess so. He was just average, like most of the population yeah. in the world. <laughs> then again, he is the king, so it's like maybe they just had to say that. So being like he ugly. But yeah, we have to give him a score, Eliza. <laughs> okay, um, what are you thinking? You can't ask me that. <laughs> uh, why? I was because you need to go first. Well, I was thinking like a seven. Yeah, that's about what I was thinking as well. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of great sort of architectural achievements, anything like yeah. that, because there's no money. Uh, <laughs> there's no money yeah, for that. Can't blame him for that, though. But I think seven is a, is a seven's a, a decent yeah score. It's a decent yeah. score for the guy. So that is a fourteen overall. So if the episode feels a bit disjointed. <laughs> That's Blame because we Eliza. had some technical dif- difficulties, and we had to we had to stop recording and and regroup the next morning because Eliza was having internet troubles. So, guys, if it if it sounds like it's a different time of day for both of us, that's because it yeah. is. <laughs> someone's just waking up. Someone's going to go to bed soon. You know. Yeah, but we left off on the on guard round for Charles yeah. VII. On guard, Charles VII. He was an he was a very anxious cautious man can't blame him and that's really saying something considering his dad literally thought he was made of glass um so poor dad uh, in the 1430s mm-hmm. you know when he starts to s- sort of acquire Grow. power win some victories you know start uh reconciling with the Gundians. yeah even when that starts happening the french finances are still at rock bottom you can't blame him for that. There was only a war going on for a hundred years. No, no, no. I, I'm not blaming. Money. I'm not blaming him for that. I'm. I <laughs> just stating the facts. The end of that sentence is, which is why <laughs> Charles okay. VII came up with numerous money-making schemes to get revenue back into the crown. Oh, schemes! Don't you say schemes? You could sound so evil. Okay, it might have been evil for the peasants, maybe. I mean, yeah. The, I, none, of, none of these people are good people. <laughs> but um, uh, one achievement of Charles's reign was the Pragmatic Sanction of Bourges, mm-hmm. uh, which was issued on the 7th of July, 1438. Okay. This is basically a set of tax laws that gave yep. the French church more rights to govern itself. This is not a full-on Henry VIII, uh, yeah, no yeah, more yeah. popes situation. <laughs> but it did mean the king was supporting the clergy of France in paying less taxes to the church. More money for the court. Also, because the church is like literally the biggest landholder in France. And bloody wealthy. It means there's more resources to sort of help that land sort of heal and recover yeah. after a century of war. 
Yeah. So we're entering the stage of the popes where they're, you know, accumulating a lot of like yeah, yeah. and stuff. The popes are accumulating a lot of wealth at this time. They were not yet at like the sixteenth century papacy Peak. when they really sort of build up Rome and and, and it's and it's really ass. lavish. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's starting. it's sort of we're yeah, we're going towards that. Um greed. <laughs> and, yeah. And the the French crown and the and the papacy are definitely sort of allied in this period. Yeah. But Charles is still being like, mm, we're gonna like distance. Well, no, no, no. It wasn't distancing. It was it was actually it actually kind of brought them closer because oh. Charles figured out a way to kind of turn off and on the tap of of uh, French revenue going to <laughs> uh, the papacy with the pragmatic sanction. Ah, oh, smart, smart, smart. It's a very complicated sort of law, but Same, it. Yeah. it it basically is Charles being like, I'm going to sort of control how much my clergy pay to the Pope a little bit more. And this was very popular among the French clergy oh, because overall weird. it meant they paid less taxes. True, true. <laughs> and we consider this as sort of a long-term thing that benefited France uh, in the oh, Voulez-Vous round as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're not doing Voulez-Vous. No, it's not Voulez-Vous. But, it, but this, we, we can count this towards Voulez-Vous as well. True, true. So while the French economy recovered, e- even though it was recovering, this was a very slow process. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially since the war dragged on right into the end of Charles's reign. Yeah. And the crown remained in debt the entire time. And Charles was mainly relying on loans, uh, mm. particularly from like powerful merchants, uh, some of whom uh, got a bit too big for their boots in this, in this period. No, there's actually there's a very powerful merchant called Jacques Coeur. Hmm. We will talk about him in Agnes Sorel's episode oh, okay. because he at one point is accused of uh, having murdered. Agnes Sorel. Oh. But he was this guy that, like, the the nobility really wanted to take down a peg because he was uh, lending money to the king. Uh, he'd become very wealthy. And, yeah. uh, uh, yeah, he like made, a lot of, made a lot of enemies. And we've talked about how Charles VII, with his reforms, he was inspired a lot by Charles V. Yep. And in a similar vein, he was definitely a very intellectual king. And he also mm. modeled himself off Gian Galeazzo Visconti. Ah, Visconti the mercenary duke who reformed Milan into a major European power. He's using him as a kind of role model. And perhaps Charles's greatest achievement was his military reform. Yeah. In the mid-1440s, while the war with England was winding down, Charles created a set of small permanent professional armies that would never be disbanded, called the Compagnie d'Ordonnance. So they're like the... The uh, beginning of the standing army, kind of. Like exactly. The, the first stage. Yeah. Um, and their main job, the, the companies d'ordonnance, was to stamp out the free companies, or the routiers, mm. which were still terrorizing okay. various yeah. parts of rural France. And this eventually put a stop to the routiers for good. That's um, good. Which is good. Because they've been a problem since, like, yeah. the, uh, like... A while, a long time. Yeah. Add this to the reform of the army to make it less sort of cavalry based and more reliant yeah. on the new artillery technology. Oh, okay. France, by the way, it, its military becomes the most advanced military in the 15th century uh, in yeah. all of Europe. Yeah. I'm not going to say the world because uh, China is always miles ahead of everyone um, yeah. <laughs> for the Middle Ages. Uh, but uh, yeah, definitely is a big player and this will come in handy a bit later on when France starts to now after they've won the Hundred Years War starts to look elsewhere for for new oh, conquests. Yeah. yeah, with their cannons. 
who, who are they going to point the cannon at next? We'll, we'll see. Uh, but, but yeah, this heavy investment in uh, military technology is, is very useful uh, for France yeah, yeah, going yeah. forward. At the start of Charles VII's reign, the French military is in an absolute state, an absolute shambles. Oh, yeah. shambles. I, and, and by the end, it's it's been reformed into this very smoothly running war machine. That's good. Charles is, he's Charles the well-served. He has a lot of really good advisors um, yeah. doing this. But he chose them, so. But yeah, towards the end of his reign, you can see him having a lot more sense and um, yeah. making some really good practical decisions, getting rid of advisors like La Tremoille, who don't serve him well, uh, well anymore, and um, promoting yeah. people like um, Arthur de Richemont, who's really oh, into yeah. these new military reforms. Yeah, and he wasn't even, like, nobility. No, he was. He was the Duke oh, of Brittany's was? brother. Well, who am I thinking no. of? You're, you're thinking of Jean Bureau, the artillery captain. Okay, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Jean Bureau was also um, an important um, uh, promoted advisor. Yeah. Arthur de Richmond actually ends up becoming the Duke of Brittany after his brother and all of his nephews die. Oh. But uh, but that's not till like the very end of his life. Wow. I think he becomes briefly the Duke of Brittany. Oh. But yeah. Uh, I think Charles can't get sort of a tippity top score just because of the blunders early in his career. Yeah. His loss of control over the situation with like murdering John the Fearless does like set yeah. the Hundred Years' War back like decades. Yeah. Because true, it true. completely alienates the Burgundians. Yeah. So I don't think it can be a really high score. Mm. But at the end of the day, he does win the Hundred Years' War. And true, true. And he does make some good reforms military-wise. Eventually. eventually. <laughs> after a while. I don't know, I think in like six or seven. Yeah. A 100-year war really takes the, the cake there, finishing that off. So yeah, I wouldn't give him as high a score as Charles V, who he gave an 8 and 8.5. Yeah. But I think a 7. Yeah. 7 sounds good, I think. Yeah, I think a 7. Um, because like character-wise, he's not the strongest character but he does win the Hundred Years War. And that just, yeah, sort of tips That's him over the edge thing. a little bit. So that is another 14. So he's got 14 in both Enchante and On Guard. <laughs> now okay. moving on to Voulez-vous. Voulez-vous? Charles might not do so great in this this part. Okay. Uh, Charles is not very good as a, as a people person. He definitely struggled at first with the internal politics of his realm. Um, although Charles VII's foreign policy was always a lot stronger. Okay. He was able to gain recognition as King of France from foreign powers a lot better That's than good. England was. Uh, oh. Most other countries in Europe saw the English as usurpers, um, oh. particularly the Scottish. Um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Charles really did well at maintaining the old alliance, preventing the Scots from going over to the English side. Nice. Charles VII even goes further to ensure that the Scots are on his side when they're sort of teetering on like maybe supporting the Burgundians. Yeah. And he ends up marrying his firstborn son to a Scottish princess. Oh, wow. Which is a huge honour for the Scots. Yeah. Unfortunately, the French court had no money left. So, wow. <laughs> so the Scottish ambassadors were a bit offended at getting a tiny, crappy wedding ceremony and a feast that ended early. Um, oh. <laughs> but we're going to get that. We're going to get to that in Louis XI's episode because it's a big source of um, strain for him and his father's oh. relationship. Oh, he can't blame his father for that. No, <laughs> it's, but he does. 
It's not, no, it's, it's not great. Charles shows a lot of lack of respect for his son. He shows up to his son's wedding in his riding clothes covered in mud. Ah! Um, and he tells the Scottish visitors to, to, to leave because they have no more money for the feast. Uh-huh. <laughs> like very rudely. He, he wasn't a very polite man, was Charles. Um, well, Colin, he did uh, prolong that, the war for so long. Yeah. So money being extremely tight throughout Charles' yeah. reign, it certainly limited the amount he could help his people or indeed yeah. produce the kind of cultural innovation that was happening at, for example, the Burgundian court or the yeah. Italian city-states where the Renaissance yeah. is really getting started. Although we are told by one chronicler that Charles was, quote, overly fond of music. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so his main interests are music, medicinal studies. He's really into medicine. Oh. Uh, mainly because he's a hy- hypochondriac. <laughs> yeah, I probably um, would develop that too after like, yeah. my dad. Being and his third in- his third big interest is women. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but partly because of his lack of money, Charles develops a reputation as a rather stingy king who lacked the, uh, the, the sort of generosity Fine. that mm. his royal forebears were known for. Ugh. Yeah, and he's probably thinking in his head... And that's why they were even in more debt. Yeah. But I feel like uh, you can have a generous character without giving everyone your money, you know? Mm. Magnanimous is the word I'm looking for, I think. Yeah. So the Burgundian chronicler Georges Chastelain describes Charles as uh, distrustful, envious, and changeable. Okay. But he does add that Charles's sort of caution and flexibility had their uses. Meanwhile, another writer, Gaston Dufresne, describes him as, quote, many men in one man. Hmm. So he That's was mood swinging all over the place. You don't know what he's going to do next. Not split personality much. <laughs> yeah. So the end of Charles's reign is where we see France really start to heal and recover from the Hundred Years' War. That's the good. reconciliation with Burgundy ends up going really well. Yeah. Um, and you can say the military reforms help the people because by doing that and creating those little standing armies is protecting the people. It really is, yeah. And in many cases, its forces are drawn from the people, so they're able to arm and protect themselves yeah, when they're not, so. um, you know, yeah. um, being called up to fight. And the pragmatic sanction of Bourges is also a point in charge's favour. It, 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 it leaves more resource, more church resources yeah. to help the people. Because the church was, you know, not just where you went to pray. It was also, like, yeah. the hospitals, the schools... Like, all of the social services, basically, were from the church. And um, Agnes Sorel, actually, uh, Charles's mistress, who basically kind of, after Yolande's death, Agnes kind of comes in and, like, fills the role that Yolande was kind of serving oh. as this kind of, like, sub-queen figure. Um, oh. your, um, Agnes was really extreme, known for her, like, extreme generosity. Balanced out the king. Charles sort of, yeah, showered her with gifts. Um, because she was really sexy. Um, and then she passed on a lot of that wealth to the people and like sponsored Aww. a lot of charitable endeavors as well. That's really good. She's a good egg. We'll get into her in, in yeah, her I know, episode. Yeah, I can't wait. But yeah, I, I think that's p- potentially a point in Charles' favor, but it's not really him doing it. <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah. it is ultimately good. He's got a lot of angels on his shoulders, basically, does yeah. Charles. Um, so while I don't think he's like an inherently good person, he chooses some good angels. He's got some good people around him who are good influences. 
Yeah. He does have some bad influences as well. True, true. Like Tongi Duchastel and Tre- La Tremwe, but those people are kind of filtered out by the end of his reign. Okay. So what do we want to give for Vulevu? It, I don't think it's as strong as the other rounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking like middling score, like a five. Yeah. 5.5? He's getting nothing for character for me. I think yeah, his character's yeah, yeah. A, a bit unpleasant. Especially especially with what happened to Joan of Arc. His lack of yeah. respect for her in the end. But like towards it, like I'd probably want to live in his reign towards the end of it. Yeah, this is the tricky thing is his his reign looks radically different from the start and from the end. I know. That's why I go 5.5. I think that might have to be a square 5 for me because it's so conflicted. So that is a 10.5 for Vulevu. Now moving on to Ulala. Yes. <gasps> Ulala. So there's quite a bit here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the greatest scandal in Charles's life was probably his implication in the murder of John the Fearless. And depending oh, on yeah. How you, depending on how we interpret it, we could say he did literally murder his first cousin once removed, uh, John. Um it's definitely the most significant scandal of his life as it triggered yeah, an entire funny. second phase of the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it directly led to Charles being disowned as the heir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the English taking power at Paris. So it's a huge, like, far-reaching, oh consequential God, so high. scandal. Yeah. Charles' abandonment of Joan of Arc is also a big black mark on his character. Yeah. Although I'm... I'm hesitant to give him points for it. Um, She's sort of the sacrificial lamb uh, of his reign. At the same same time, though, it's like he felt she'd done her job. She didn't, she wasn't needed anymore. And she's kept going, no, 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 let's just keep fighting. And he's like, that time is done. And she just didn't seem to get it. Yeah. Charles is very pragmatic, whereas Joan is is very not She rushes in. She definitely, like someone who thinks. Like, she acts before she thinks. Yeah. We definitely saw that in Joan's episode. Um, so that's why I feel like but, going, you can't blame him for, like, being like, can you just, like, go away? Yeah. But then Charles, like, completely, like, basically gets the court, the entire court to forget about Joan of Arc uh, for 20 years. Um, wow. And then then suddenly he, he changes his tune. Once the Hundred Years' War is, is sort of wrapping up he sort of changes his tune and he decides to nullify joan's heresy trial because not only do the people of france still see her as a hero yeah but also it looks a bit bad if a convicted heretic helped him get power but i do understand why it took him 20 years because like the war was still going on you don't want her her legacy or whatever just be very strong because then that might cause people to want to have like you know might raise the spirits of fighting and like you know wanting to do more military stuff which at the time would not be good for him because he's trying to finish the war not make it big again and he was trying to be diplomatic with the burgundians as well who hated joan (laughs) yeah so i'm like it does make sense why so in other news and scandal despite having 14 children with his wife Marie of Anjou. God, poor um, lady. It seems like there was no spark whatsoever to their relationship. When they weren't making babies, basically, Charles just seemed to have has ignored his wife. Okay. Which is in stark contrast to how much he seemed to love and look up to his mother-in-law, funnily <laughs> enough. And Charles was constantly unfaithful to her. Um, yeah. 
to the chagrin of, of Yolande. Um, yeah. But it seems as though Yolande was able to prevent any of Charles's mistresses from leading him too far astray. Uh, that is until her death, after which Charles immediately met the love of his life, Agnes Sorel, oh. who was a uh, she was originally a like lady's maid at the Burgundian court. Oh. Um, and when they came to visit, he just fell in love with her instantly. Oh. Now again, we'll get more into uh, Agnes in in her episode, in Agnes. but yeah. it's def- she's definitely worth a couple points in Charles's um, Ulla oh, yeah. because she's her legacy. She's seen by many as the first sort of official royal mistress. mistress. Yeah. Um, now, this is a bit controversial, and we'll get to it in the mistress episode. I know. Because um, that's very much up to interpretation. Um, yeah. But her prominence at Charles's court kind of sets a precedent for future yeah. mistresses. And yeah. um, after this, 100 years later, Francis I uh, will we'll take this to a new level um, <laughs> for reasons <laughs> that we'll see. Um, yeah. That's for sure. And yes, Agnes is famous for having shown off her favourite boob in several paintings. Which we'll side was as well. it again? Which one was it? If you're facing it, it's the right boob. So it's her left boob her left. was her favourite boob. I know nice. this because I've, I've I've already designed her cover art, so I've been staring nice. at that picture for a while. I hope you made her boob, like, her nipple gold. What? Like, give it a little golden nip. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't do that. Oh. I considered covering the nipple with some censoring, but I don't think we need to do that on Patreon. Yeah. Um, so so. Just put a golden nip if you have to do the censoring. Yeah. A little halo! <laughs> but the reason Agnes is very important for Ulla La is that her prominence at court did have um, massive political consequences. Um, yeah. It resulted in Queen Marie's family, the House of Anjou, suddenly diminishing in influence while uh, lesser noblemen were able to sort of ride Agnes's coattails and uh, gain prominent positions. And courtiers who uh, disliked this change accused Agnes of, uh, quote, enslaving the king. I'm surprised they didn't go for witchcraft. Well, I'm sure some some might have. I might have called her a witch. I think, I think the, um, the outrage against Agnes was limited by the fact that she was generally... As a person, she was generally quite, yeah, like, sweet and, like, um, self-effacing and that kind of thing. She wasn't arrogant, uh, personally. Again, she's a sweetheart, and we're going to get to her. Yay! But one of the people who was outraged with Agnes was Charles's son, Louis XI. Oh. And later in his life, the biggest source of scandal for Charles is his relationship with uh, the Dauphin. Now, in the interest of time... Uh, yeah. We'll save a lot of details for next episode when we cover yes. Louis himself. Uh, but just know that Louis's early life is teen rebellion on a, on a national scale. <laughs> so after the Praguery, he was banished to his lands in Dauphiné in the south of France. Yeah. And after the tragic death of his first wife, the Scottish princess, oh. um, he married a princess from Savoy um, mm-hmm. and made a personal alliance with um, Savoy, which is like Ooh. kind of modern day Switzerland in 1451 against his father's, father's wishes. And Ooh. Charles responded by completely confiscating Louis's lands in France. Yeah. And oh. Louis completely left the kingdom to go campaign Damn. in England with his uncle Rene of Anjou, who was trying to take back Naples. In England? Because the Anjous are always, always trying to take Naples. No, in Italy. Oh, you said campaign in England. Did I? I thought I said Italy. That's where you said England. Maybe okay, we're both well, losing our minds. The listeners can decide. <laughs> we'll put a poll on them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Who's so, going cray cray? So Louis managed to sort of 
eventually worm his way back into France, uh, mainly because uh, he was protected by the Duke of Burgundy, um, oh. who he became close to. But he never managed to to reconcile Not, his father. Uh, never gone the good graces again. Yeah, and he was in he was in Flanders, so in like Burgundy's territory in 1461 when he got the news of his father's death and came back to get crowned. Yeah. Okay. So those are the those are the main scandals of of Charles's reign. They are pretty big. He's a very he's a, he's a very saucy character. He's he a, a literal murderer, according to a lot of people. He was he was disinherited as a boy. He's got a lot of yeah. scandalous family drama going on. The first official royal mistress. It's not yeah. too bad. For yeah, it's quite high up. Basically, prolonging a war by quite a few decades. Yeah. It's a, a feat that you don't see very often. I would, in order to get like a tippity top, like 10 out of 10. Oh yeah, he's I would not going to get 10 out of 10. I would want him to have more agency. I would want him to be more of like a, like a Machiavellian, like, I know, I do love. Moving pieces on the chessboard. I know. Um, but... Which, as we may see, Louis XI, in many ways, Ooh. fits that bill. But we'll, we'll yes. see that in, in the next episode, I think. A little Machiavellian vibe. But basically, we want to, we want to leave room uh, in the scandal round, yes. is what I'm saying. Okay, I'm thinking like eight. Yeah, I was kind of thinking eight as well. Eight is the, um, eight is the score Pretty of Clothar the First, the nephew murderer. Yeah, um, that, that's, how <laughs> that's how that's how bar for for Lala and uh, Charles Seventh is also a kinslayer. I'm tempted to even go eight point five, but I think I think eight is good. Yeah, eight is. And that will be the highest score um, for Ooh. Charles Seventh at sixteen. He's our last highest scandal king. Oh no, no, he's not the highest overall. Yeah, I'm no, just saying that's his the... highest score. But the highest for scandal is Philip the Fourth. Yeah, that was a Pope, Pope slap, Templars, yeah. etc. Yeah, um, he he got sixteen point five, so he's so he's point five ahead of the the two second place are this guy uh, Charles yeah. the Seventh. So he's now in second place, yeah. uh, tied with Philip the First, Philip the Amorous. Yeah. Who had excommunication and bedroom scandal. <laughs> I mean, Charles VII doesn't get excommunicated, but he does get disinherited, which is kind of just yeah. as bad. Yeah, yeah, it is. If you're trying to be king. <laughs> Even though ultimately the disinheriting does not stick. Yeah. But then again, nor do, nor do the excommunications, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So now we're going into Luffy on Throne. Yes. Luffy on Throne. So the reign. Charles reigned officially from his father's death on the 21st of October, 1422, although mm-hmm. he was disputed for a while and wasn't crowned for seven years. Yeah. Um, but we're going we're gonna to be generous. We're going to count it from when his father died. Yeah. And he reigned all the way until his own death on the 22nd of July, 1461, okay. which is 38 years, nine months, and one day. <laughs> one day. And that is... Yeah. Uh, just slightly shorter than his father by about four years. Yeah. Um, and that reign gives him 7.24 points. Not too shabby. Now the children. Yes. And we survived. Now we're not going to go through all 14 of the uh, children that were born between him and his wife. Um, oh. Because half of them died in infancy. Oh. We're just going to go for the ones that survived a bit longer. Um, okay. So. So the top seven, basically, okay. of the children. Um, he also had three children with Agnes Sorel, oh. uh, three daughters with her, but we're not going to count 
uh, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first of all, we've got Louis the Eleventh. Yeah. They have a son and heir right out the gate. He's the first of all of the children born. Nice. Uh, and will, of course, be the subject of ne- next episode. Then we have Radagond, uh, named for a patron saint of France. Yep, new name. Um, She was betrothed to Sigismund von Habsburg, the Archduke of Austria. Oh, Habsburg! Yeah, but she sadly died age 17 without completing the marriage. Yeah. Um, So then we got Catherine, named for her aunt, Catherine of of Valois, the Queen of England. Um, She was married to Charles the Bald, Duke of Burgundy, the son and successor of Philip the Good. Um, okay. but she also died young, age 18, and they had no children. Mm. Yeah. Um, then we have Yolande, named for her grandfather, yeah. Yolande of Aragon. A grandmother, grandmother, I should say. Yolande of Aragon. <laughs> um, she lived a fair bit longer, into her 40s, oh, nice. and she married the Duke of Savoy, Amadeus the Ninth. Um, all of the Dukes of Savoy are called Amadeus, by the way. <laughs> I do like that name though. That'd be a really good dog name. Like, Amadeus, come here. Good boy. Okay, so then we have Joan, because uh, we needed another Joan. Um, or a turtle. She, she also outlived her father, and uh, she married uh, Duke John II of Bourbon. Okay. Uh, the so son good. of the Bourbon who rebelled. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they had no children. Um, And there we have Madeleine, or Magdalene, who married Gaston of Foix. Gaston! um, Yes, Gaston. Gaston is a very popular name in this time, in the south of France. It's a very popular name, particularly among members of the Foix family. Um, And uh, he was the heir to the kingdom of Navarre uh, for a while, but he didn't live long enough to become king. But their son and their daughter became the king and then the queen of of Navarre. Oh, wow. And yeah, and Madeleine's daughter, Catherine the First, got married to John of Albray and continued the line of Navarre, which at this point, the line of Navarre has passed through numerous French dynasties. It's just going to have been handed yeah. around um, and had quite a few female monarchs along the way as well. Nice. And eventually it will end up with the House of Bourbon um, ruling Navarre. Yeah. So then we get to the last born child of Charles and Marie, which is Charles Jr., the youngest child. Mm-hmm. Oh, the one who was at the deathbed. Yeah, he was 15 years old when his father died. Louis the Eleventh then immediately made him the Duke of Berry. Um, huh. And he also eventually became the Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine. So he was wow. quite a powerful lord. However, yeah. he died in his 20s and he didn't produce oh. any children. So that's all the children. So since the first two it's daughters... Five. Radagond and Catherine, yeah, sadly died before Charles. That counts as five surviving legitimate children. Damn, I wish Radagond had survived. She had a good name. But that's still a very good score. Remember, the maximum the maximum number of children we have is eight. Um, yeah. So five is pretty good. And yeah, that's a score good. of 8.44 points. Okay. So that's a total V on Throne score of 15.68 points. An mm-hmm. admirable score. Um, yeah. And it's one whole point more than his dad got as well. (laughs) (laughs) With all of that said, um, we now have to tally up the score. Yay, drum roll, please do. Drum roll, please. And that is a score of (laughs) 70.2. Damn. Solidly in the top 10. Yeah, not too shabby. By one point, he has beaten uh, Louis IX, St. Louis. 
Damn. He's also just under Louis the Fat, who was a, a king that we quite liked as well. Okay. And he's he's also beaten uh, Charles Martel as well. Oh. He's just narrowly beaten Charles Martel. I think that kind of sort of comes down to not Charles Martel necessarily being better, but yeah. us just having less about him <laughs> to go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there will be a general... I mean, there, we've seen this with the Capetians. There's been a general... Uh, the average score has definitely it's increased higher. quite a lot. Because we have more uh, info. Purely because we have more info, yes. Um, I, it was like when I was little, I used to always wish I could time travel, but it'd be like I was invisible, so I couldn't interact with anyone, but I could just see what was happening and know stuff. I yeah, I okay. don't worry, Eliza. I've had that wish many times as a historian. Yeah. For me, it was always with seeing the Library of Alexandria or to find out where Alexander the Great's body was buried. They're my two yeah. like biggest ones I would love to time travel for. With all of that said, do you yes. think Charles VII is fascinating enough, entertaining enough, majestic and fabulous and irresistible enough to be released from our dungeon, to go through the, the Battle Royale Championship, and to be spared the guillotine? Oh, this is a hard one. Okay, I kind of want to get to him, but in time I'm a bit like, oh, he, I don't know how long he'd last in the next round because he's just not as likable as some of the previous ones but same time I'm like oh I did like him better than what when I came into the episode yeah like definitely because I think it's because you guys until you mentioned anybody mentioned previous episodes I was expecting like this horrible 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 king like absolutely worse like scum Mm -hmm. of the earth and so it's been nice to like oh he's not actually as bad as what I was thinking he definitely right. frustrated a lot of the other nobility whose perspectives yeah. we've mainly been focusing on. That's why. Other episodes. <laughs> so um, I came in for a very bad image of him. So, But definitely... he was, I mean, he was very popular among his people, but I think a lot of yeah. that comes down to the kingly mystique around him that all yeah. kings sort of have. Do you think he has like the it factor that it really takes to compete I, among I, the likes I... of... Uh, I don't think so. It's you know, the likes of Philip the Fourth and uh, and uh, I don't think else? so. Philip Augustus. I don't think yeah. so. I think, I unfortunately, he just doesn't have that star power. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the guillotine uh, for yep. Charles VII. I from the start <laughs> had pretty much decided that he was got his head was going in the bin in the basket. Um, it's a really interesting reign, of course. He, as a yeah. person, though, I just don't find compelling. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I feel so. I want to be friends with the more of the women around him. Yeah, absolutely. And really, it's the women around him who kind of make his reign the yeah. interesting period. It what is between Yolande, Agnes Sorel, um, Joan. Joan of Arc, uh, Isabel Bavaria. Like they're all way yeah. infinitely more interesting than him True. um and a lot of the men as well uh you yeah. know like um the dukes of burgundy uh mm. the duke of alenson with his scandalous slater life yeah. the feud between richemont and la tremoy yeah so the, yeah there's a lot of interesting characters around charles the yeah. um and we're going to be going getting into one of those characters in our patreon Ooh. episode we're going to be talking about gilles de Ray the notorious Ooh. serial killer guy but uh yeah so Ch- so charles is now, uh, because he's narrowly beaten Louis the Ninth, he uh, is now the highest uh, scoring person who has been guillotined. 
I think yeah. many people will be surprised that he's scored higher than Louis the Ninth. Yeah, but Louis the Ninth um, is hopeless. The bloody <laughs> you have a very low opinion of Louis the Ninth. Yeah, I really do. I know Clint. I think everybody else who seems to quite be like, oh, he's saint, yeah. oh, and I'm like, he can't even do a bloody campaign without dying. You're not, you're not fooled by the. Uh, I mean, he Saintly. did have a lot of good uh, reforms and that kind of thing. But I think I think the the issue with Louis the Ninth is we we gave a lot of credit for that stuff to Blanche of Castile, yeah, um, yeah, who kind of pushed him off, and then he kind of got the, got a boost from her, um, essentially. Mm-hmm. Also, who was who was ruling the kingdom while Louis was away? Mm-hmm. It was Blanche. Too true. Yeah. Twice, two regencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so job. that is Charles the Seventh episode. It's run longer than I hoped it would. <laughs> Yeah. But I hope you guys enjoyed every second of it. Yeah. Um, let us know what you think. Let us know what you think. Louis XI, I, I think, will be getting a two-parter. Ooh, yay. We're now getting into a period where a lot of the kings Me are going to have two-parters. Just because we have so much detail about their reigns. Yeah. Yeah. God, towards the end, like Napoleon, he's going to get like a four-parter. Oh yeah, yeah, he's gonna get a massive episode. Speaking of which, I need to see the the uh, Napoleon film. Uh, <laughs> we won't be doing an episode on it uh, because I haven't done the research for Napoleon yet. Obviously, yeah, obviously. It's, a bit, it's a bit down the line. Um, but yeah, I think once once I do do that research, we'll eventually in what oh, yeah, like three years, to, three years time or whatever it's like how i got to marie antoinette movie just because i'm like i love the costumes and stuff in it and the set yeah amazing. um set but considering ridley scott who's making napoleon did the last <laughs> duel i don't have a lot of confidence oh in, yeah in him, in him doing french history <laughs> yeah but we'll just see we'll see it's different it's different writers it's 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 different yeah it's different so yeah we'll see we'll see good luck to him anyway um so one last thing if you are listening if you have listened all the way up to this point to like all of our episodes and i know there are many of you out there and you have not yet reviewed us whether that's on apple podcasts or like whatever podcast app you might use please do even if it's just to say eliza's so weird yeah even just to say eliza slays you can say that you can say weird too. I do take that as a, a badge of honor. Yeah. Or calling me a witch because I do like being. I would <laughs> yes, be just witch. just five stars. Eliza is a witch. That's all you need to do. Hashtag it takes like two heresy. seconds. And if you could do that, it's like a very small way that you can just give the podcast a little boost because we know that there are loads of you out there who in, enjoy us in silence, yeah. which is fine. Uh, yeah, but, we used to uh, like it's just like a one little little thing you can do that takes no time at all. Yeah, you can that will really help word. us. We're still a small fledgling podcast. We yeah. we did recently go past a hundred thousand uh, downloads, which is Yay! lovely. But we really want to uh, boost that, get lots of listeners and engagement as well. So that way, we know we're doing stuff people like. So if you guys could help out, that'd be really good. Anyway, that's me. That's my soapbox moment at the end of the episode. Have a pleasant Christmas time, everyone. Yes. I think it'll be coming yes. out. A I new think just year. before Christmas. Yeah. And a happy yeah. new year. All right, that's going to be au revoir don't for me. Don't choke on those puddings. Don't choke on those puddings. The, puddings. The, don't the don't murder puddings. your cousins on bridges. Yeah, just stay away from yeah. the bridges. And stay your away from bridges. 
stay off horses. And don't uh, go to creepy forests where the yeah. murder could happen. And don't get dysentery or syphilis as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, the usual. Yeah. That happens in everyday life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's. Did we say our. We said our. Or if I didn't. Yeah. You that said was mixed that, in. Goodbye was, from me. That was mixed in there. <laughs>